0: It's the amazing Rico Bronya podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to another Rico Bronya, where no, no, we have no endgame on what the hell's going to happen with Carlos Correa. I guess we should start with the Carlos Correa update, which is really nothing. <laughs> I mean, ooh, the Minnesota Twins may be involved. Ooh, the Mets and Correa still talking. This process sucks, and there's two kind of ancillary things that make this suck. Number one, Carlos Correa was a surprise for all of us. When we woke up 18 days ago, 19 days ago, 20 days ago, depends when you're listening, and found out the shocking news that the Mets apparently were signing Carlos Correa, we were met with shock, shock and awe. Well, as we sit here three weeks later, there is no shock. Now we're just waiting to find out, is he actually going to be a Met or is he not going to be a Met? And if he's not a Met, even though I think most of us would say, okay, I understand the concern. I understand the fear of the ankle. It's going to be met with massive disappointment. And I think that this Met offseason, no matter what you thought about it three weeks ago, even though it would be the same offseason prior to the signing of Correa, which none of us saw coming, it would feel worse. It would feel like a disappointment. That may not be fair necessarily, but is that not true? That we have spent three weeks as Met fans dreaming about Carlos Correa in this batting order. Not as a unrealistic fantasy, but as a reality or as what we thought was an apparent reality. So I don't know if that affects ticket sales. I don't know if that affects the Met business But for me, you, and most of us as Met fans, the view of the offseason changes, as unfair as that may sound. Because we thought Correa was going to be on the team, and he may not be on the team. Now, that's not the reason Steve Cohen should just give him whatever he wants. That wouldn't be the reason to give Scott Boris whatever he wants. But I'm just trying to analyze this fairly. And trying to think about what most Met fans are going to be thinking about if we do get the news at some point that the Mets have walked away from these negotiations and Correa ends up wherever you want to put him. That no matter what you thought three weeks ago about this Met offseason, you will probably think a little bit more negatively about it now. Does that represent you,
1: Hoff? And I, I, I do feel that way because it's this the past three weeks, I've, I've been under the impression that Carlos Correa is ours. Now, is it devastating blow to us, to the New York Mets, that he if he does not become a Met? No, it doesn't. But it's one of those things where it's like it makes so much sense. It feels like he's ours. And it's like I'm not bragging. I haven't bragging at all. I've been like, oh, my God, lock it up championship. But it, at this point in time, if it doesn't get done, it, it kind of will dig at us, for for me, for quite some time.
0: Yeah, and that's not saying to the Mets, just sign him at all costs. I'm not in that camp. I think some Mets fans may be in that camp. I'm not in that camp because we are talking about a 12-year, $300 million contract. And the Mets are not making up the ankle concerns. The San Francisco Giants weren't making up the ankle concerns. So the Mets have to be smart about what they feel comfortable giving him. And considering how badly Steve Cohen wants him, I think that was made clear by the comments he made a few weeks ago, whatever they end up walking away from is going to feel justified. But it doesn't change the fact that for days and days and days, we were all doodling Met lineups that featured Carlos Correa in it. I'm also at the point where I kind of want closure to this whole thing. It isn't really – holding up the offseason wouldn't be a fair thing to say. Sure, if this Correa thing gets signed, they'll move on to other things. They may trade Eduardo Escobar like we talked about on the last Rico. But if they don't sign him, it's not as if there's somebody sitting out there that they're going to sign that's even close to being on the same level as Carlos Correa. There are other options to fill out this roster guys like Andrew McCutcheon and Adam Duvall, players like that. But obviously, none of them are on the level of Correa. None of them would have the role of Carlos Correa. So it's not even the frustration of holding up the offseason. It's more just knowing <laughs> for all of us. Just, is this guy on the
1: team or is he not on the team? What the hell's going on? Yeah, but you, you say it's not holding things up, but it, it kind of is. With what, though? I, again, th- there's the the levels. It's like, Ken Rosenthal put out the statement, if, if, if and when this happens for a Correa, Escobar is probably going to be dealt. Well, that seems like a major piece because you and I just sat here the last podcast and said, we we think that he a, is an asset to the New York Mets and we think we should have him on the team. But now you see this, there, and we'll get into some things later, there are pieces being dealt that would be an asset if Escobar was dealt the way that the Mets could actually use. Yeah, but, okay, but here's my counter to that.
0: I don't think teams who wanted Eduardo Escobar are going to move on from it. Like I think they're going to wait and find out how the Carlos Correa thing unfolds. There may be even a little bit of a holdup to minor things of the offseason then of waiting to find out, okay, is Correa on the Mets? Because that could make this guy available. That could make that guy available. So I don't think the Mets are losing out on anything because of the Correa holdup. Like, the Philadelphia Phillies made the trade for Gregory Soto. We're going to talk a little Phillies today and the looming threat that they pose to the Mets in the National League East. That's coming up in a little bit. But I don't necessarily think that if the Correa thing was done 48 hours ago, Escobar's going to Detroit for Gregory Soto. I don't necessarily think that. Okay,
1: but if they don't get Correa, they are less likely to trade Escobar, which is why maybe other pieces may be you know taken away. Like again, you're right. It may not have been a guarantee that Soto was the guy that was gonna be traded back for 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 Escobar. But because we don't know whether we are going to keep or trade Escobar, it it does hinder some other aspects of it. It could be a met Escobar may be a met. If Correa is, is not on this team, if that's a possibility, Escobar's gonna be on the team. Oh no but, doubt about it. it. But
0: if we think, okay, what do the Mets do? tomorrow if is a twin, right? They decide to walk away. Carlos signs with Minnesota or some other team, hopefully not the Braves, which is like a deep, dark fear. What do the Mets do? I'm telling you what they do is something minor. What they do is they go back to what we were talking about three and a half weeks ago, which is adding a right-handed DH to improve over Darren Roth. You know, they're not adding a third baseman because the Mets could easily say, we have Eduardo Escobar, we have Brett Beatty, we have Luis Guillerme, we're good to go. We we were adding Correa because he's a special player who happened to be available, but I don't think it it causes the Mets to do anything crazy. Uh, there are Mets fans who believe that Cohen will do something crazy because he has shown us that when he gets angry, he does something big. The story from last year, he's mad at Steven Matz's agent, 48 hours later, Max Scherzer's a Met. He's mad at Jacob deGrom for talking about how, hey, I went to a team that's really serious about winning, and he goes out and he signs Justin Verlander and Cody Singa and Jose Quintana and then eventually Carlos Correa. I don't think there's anything crazy left to do, and that's even when Correa signed. Correa was... The last big piece available. I never thought the Red Sox were trading Rafael Devers, and obviously that's not going to happen now that they've locked him up to a long-term contract. So I don't think there's this monstrous move necessarily to pivot
1: to. But I think we're going to get an answer soon. Who, I really do. Who do you think blinks first, though? That's really what it comes down to. It's a staring contest, and it's it's between, between Cohen and Boris. So... I said, I think it was on the last Rico or maybe
0: two Ricos ago, I lose track because this Correa thing has lasted forever, that I've remained confident the Mets are going to end up with him. Now, that confidence has taken a little bit of hit because there was the leaking a couple of days ago where the Mets are ready to move on and Boris is fielding other offers. So you have heard those stories come out, the negative stories. But here we are a few days after those leaks, and it's back to radio silence. It's back to they're still talking. It's back to Correa still prefers to be a Met and Cohen still prefers to get something done. So I still think they work something out because logic also tells me where is Carlos going and what is he getting? The San Francisco Giants walked away from a contract because of the medicals. The New York Mets have been staring them down for 18 days, and they would then walk away
1: because of the medicals.
0: So what team is giving them 10 years guaranteed and won't be afraid of the medicals?
1: It's not 10 years guaranteed, but it'll be the Atlanta breeze for like five.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's all our fears. That's all our fears. I remain... I'm not cocky. I'm not saying it's like 90%, but I remain leaning towards the idea that they're going to make things work. But if it doesn't work, it's going to be a massive disappointment. There's no denying that. I, I can't I can't sugarcoat that. It would be a big disappointment, and it'd be tough to to go back to 20 days ago and try to get back to that feeling of how we felt about this offseason. There was a split. There were Met fans. I, you may have been one of them, Pete, who said, yeah, I like what they did with the pitching, but I don't feel like we've gotten any better offensively, so I guess it'll go back... To that discussion but it's tough man when you spend three weeks thinking Carlos Correa is gonna be in your lineup and then he's not
1: that's what we call blue balls <laughs> this whole thing has been a giant case of blue balls and and I was one of those people that were like we need something else to put us over the hump and that's the thing about Carlos Correa I, we've talked about this numerous times it, it's Carlos Correa is not an MVP type of guy. He's not somebody that's going to come in and be like, whoa, this guy's going to be Aaron Judge, Shoei Otani. We know that. But for this Mets team, the piece is just so exciting to be like, oh, my God, we have so many toys to play with. With the lengthens the, line- lengthens the lineup, it stretches everything out. It just makes the team that much better. He can't do that anywhere else. So it's like it makes so much sense that he should be a Met because his impact is greatest with the Mets, not on any other ball club. Well, unless he's an Atlanta Brave. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. That's not happening,
0: by the way. They don't have any more money. No, they signed lie. everybody already. I think the Brave thing is just this common joke that the Braves will end up finding a way. Yeah, They'll find a way to do it. The only positive is there was an article written by this Atlanta-based journalist about a week and a half ago crying about the Mets. You know, this is so wrong, but they'll still lose anyway because they're not as good as the Braves. And I'd love to see him then have to rationalize how now Carlos Correa is a brave and now oh, it's amazing. It's fantastic. The one thing that did happen over the weekend is the Philadelphia Phillies have continued to revamp their bullpen. They made a trade for Gregory Soto, a guy we had mentioned for the Mets as a potential target. And the Philadelphia Phillies have had a very interesting offseason. They have done something that's actually really good for baseball. When major league baseball announced the expansion of the MLB postseason. There was a thought, there was a fear that teams would say, Well, we really don't need to spend as much. Just get to the postseason and get hot. The Philadelphia Phillies were obviously the definition of that in 2022. They won eighty seven games. They pretty much collapsed at the end of the regular season. More on that in a second. But then when they got to the playoffs to their credit, they got real hot. They won two games in the wild card series to advance. They obviously pulled off the upset of the Atlanta Braves in the Divisional Series. They took care of the Padres in the NLCS, and the Philadelphia Phillies were very close to winning a World Series, and they did that off the heels of a very disappointing regular season. So after that happened, there was a fear. We talked about it briefly in possibility with the Mets, and certainly Yankee fans have talked about it, that the Phillies could be this bad inspiration for teams to say, we don't need to be that good. We don't need to win 100 games. We just need to be good enough to make the postseason and then get hot at the right time. It's just about being lucky at the right time. So there was a chance that the story of the 2022 Philadelphia Phillies could be a negative story. A story that gave owners the excuse not to spend. And the Philadelphia Phillies themselves have gone out this offseason and have been very, very aggressive. They signed Trey Turner, the apple of Pete Hoffman's eye. They give him a ton of money. They give him a ton of years. They completely redo this bullpen. They signed Craig Kimbrell. They trade for Gregory Soto. They signed Matt Strom. Like, they're, they signed Taiwan Walker. They've been aggressive. Now, we'll give our thoughts on how good they are and if they are a real threat in this National League East, but I do compliment them for that. Because that was a fear, and I heard that from Yankee fans, from Met fans, and from baseball fans, that the attitude would be, why do we need to get that good when all we got to do is find a way to make the postseason and get hot at the right time? Which, even though that may be true in the whole grand scheme of things, just get hot at the right time, you still want to see your general manager and your owner aggressively try to make the team as best as it possibly can be. That's still what you want as a fan. And so that's the one compliment Hoff I got to give the Phillies that the team that defined just get hot at the right time then went into the offseason and said, yeah, we need to be better.
1: Yeah, and that sucks. I mean, I it, it makes the it makes the division that much scarier because you think about this: the Braves are this nuisance, this this team that's always around, always bothers us, and we like, oh Philly, you know, we joke about the fundamentals. We we joke about all this stuff in Philadelphia. We don't take seriously yet they go to the World Series, and then they bulk up. And you're right, I freaking love Trey Turner. I do love that man so much, and he should have been a Met, but whatever. So be it. He's not. But the Phillies get him? I mean, come on. And on top of that, my boy Taiwan Walker, who I, again, love him. Was happy that he got a contract, a nice deal. He's got to go to the Phillies. Like, in all areas, in all aspects, they are turning or trying to turn into a juggernaut. And you look at how much money is dished around that that the field, the position players. There's a ton of money out there between C- uh, Castellanos, yep, Harper. Yep. I mean, they're doing the same thing that we're doing. So they can't, like, I, I, no one in Philly can can write an article about how how negative it is for for Cohen to be a, uh, an owner of a
0: team. Oh, no, no, you're you're 100% right, and I think I mentioned that maybe a couple of Ricos ago about how the Phillies are a bought team, and that's not a knock on them in any stretch because, hey, that just means they have an owner that's willing to spend. Like, we have an owner that's willing to spend, but you're right, when you look up and down that lineup— JT Real Muto bought Kyle Schwarber bought Nick Castellanos bought Bryce Harper bought now Trey Turner bought and good for them that's not said in any kind of negative light what what scares me about the Phillies last year in 2022 the year they won the National League pennant which is still hilarious and depressing to say they had such a disappointing season outside of Real Muto who had a real good year behind the plate and basically played every day and Kyle Schwarber, who had 46 home runs, even though he hit for an insanely low average, but I expect that average to go up with the shift going away. They had so many guys have down years. That's what scares me. Bryce Harper missed a lot of games. He missed 63 games last year. Now, he'll miss games this year. We all know that. At the beginning of the season, maybe it'll go into the all-star break with the Tommy John surgery. But Bryce Harper last year missed a significant period of time. The real dud was Nick Castellanos. And there's no way, because I've watched a lot of Nick Castellanos over the years, whether it's with Detroit, whether it's with Cincinnati or with Chicago, he's a freaking hitter. And there's no way in hell he's going to have another year where he has a sub-700 OPS, let alone sub-800 OPS. He's a hell of a hitter. Alec Baum's only getting better. Bryson Stott's now going to be the second baseman with Trey Turner coming in. And we mentioned the addition of Trey Turner. Reese Hoskins is in a contract year. I think the Phillies, offensively, they're going to be a legitimately better team. The Braves are the Braves. I, I mean, it's not even worth analyzing them. They're good. They're fantastic. They got a lot of young players signed for 155 years. They're great. Probably write them down and win close to 95 to 100 games. The Phillies are the wild card because they're really good, but they struggled last year. They had this weird up and down, up and down season. But I look at this lineup, when you add Trey Turner and you have Bryce Harper coming back in the second half and you know Castellanos is going to have a better year and Schwarber, you know, I'd say a similar year, probably up in average, down in home runs, if I had to predict. Hoskins in a contract year. Maybe Realmudo goes backwards because he's 32 years old and he's a catcher. You never know. But I would fully think that the Philadelphia Phillies are going to score even more runs this year.
1: That'd you, be my guess. Do you do you know that meme that's out there, the Michael Jordan one, where he's like sitting there on a couch and he's like, and then I took that personally. Yes, that's like Nick Cassianos when he was asked if he hears the booze. Yes, he when he got hurt, it. when he got asked that question, I think he took it personally, and and, and it, things changed. I mean, if you consider how bad it was at that point in time in the season, where someone's going to ask him if he hears the booze, and to where it, it ended up, and I think in the playoffs he was pretty good. Well, he was making great defensive
0: plays. That's what he was doing. He had a little bit in the divisional series. Outside of that, he didn't hit a lot. But all of a sudden, Nick Castellanos was making diving catches in the outfield, which I would never vouch for him for because he's a terrible <laughs> defensive player. But he actually did that. But yeah, he started to at least come through in big moments. And he had his big moments after he was
1: clearly bothered by being asked about the booze. Yeah, and and that that you're right. I think that he's going to turn around. And and that just when you have those big pieces and have such like that's why you talked about the Met. you had an, we had an episode where you talked about Alonzo and Lindor and some of these other guys that didn't really have career years they just had really good years they had right. great years for the Mets but they weren't career years things will get better but that just shows too that was 101 wins they'll get better Phillies were terrible and they still got to the World Series. <laughs> Yes, well, it's weird because I think we have to judge
0: their regular season. The playoffs are a completely different animal, and obviously they were tremendous in the postseason. I give them full credit for it, but over the course of 162 games, they underachieved. They won 87 games. I'm telling you they should be a lot better, and not just by adding Trey Turner, but by – guys who were there last year performing better now i also think their rotation is going to be better zach wheeler missed about six starts last year which has been rare for him since he came back from tommy john surgery with the mets i would expect that zach wheeler is as good if not better aaron is in a contract year uh he had a real good year last year i don't know if he'll be much better bailey falter was very impressive when he pitched down the stretch and they added taiwan walker Tywan Walker to me is a clear upgrade over Kyle Gibson. Kyle Gibson pitched to a 5 ERA. Now, I think the adjustment for Ty at Citizens Bank Park may be a thing. The real X factor is going to be this bullpen. They have, I shouldn't say completely redone it because Sir Anthony Dominguez will be back. Jose Alvarado will be back. Andrew Bellotti will be back. But they go out and they add Craig Kimbrell, which I'm not sure what to think about because Craig Kimbrell looks done. And I thought he was done a few years ago, but then he had that stretch with the Cubs a few years ago where it's like, oh, maybe he's not done. But then he goes to the White Sox and he sucks. He's terrible with the Dodgers last year. Does Craig Kimbrell have one more monster year left in him? It's possible. They go out and add Gregory Soto, which is good insurance for it. Uh, They did lose David Robertson to a a team you may be familiar with, our team. And they did add Matt Strom, who's the definition of an up-and-down bullpen arm. The Phillies' bullpen over the last four years has consistently sucked. Again, leaving the postseason out, just looking at the regular season, their bullpens have been consistently 25th in Major League Baseball, 24th in Major League Baseball. Will Strom, Soto, Kimbrell versus Eflin, Robertson, and Hand necessarily improve it? We'll see. Bullpens are so up and down. But the Phillies, when you look at this division, that's the real wild card. Because the Braves, to me, are the same. They're going to be very, very good. They're going to be very difficult to beat. Last year, the New York Mets beat the crap out of the Philadelphia Phillies. They played them 19 times, and they went 14-5. and If that's a more competitive number next year, and it's not 19 games, we do have to keep that in mind, it's been lowered. It's no longer 19. I think it's 13 that you play against your division. So you're taking six games away. But if it's a more even matchup this year, which you'd expect it to be, that changes everything. That that changes the way this division looks. So, I I go into this season as we are a month plus from spring training,
1: and I think the Phillies are a bigger threat this year than they were last year. I agree, and I think the one person that you missed, which is hard because you hit everybody, we you didn't talk about Ranger Suarez. That kid's twenty seven years old. Yep, he's good, and, and right. he's he's turned a corner. Again, he got more uh, got more starts this past season. He's someone to mess with; that, that he's going to be tough to mess with, and he's a, a lefty. And uh, you know, you always talk about. It's funny because I always talk about lefties as you don't need a lefty in your starting rotation. You just don't. It doesn't ha- You don't have to do it if he's not effective. You don't need it. But when you have one who's highly effective, it's scary. And I feel like this guy, Ranger Suarez, last year, good year. He's only improving, and he, you know his strikeout to to walk ratios okay and he's he's just getting better with age right now.
0: No, he's good. I mean he's only 26, 27 years old. He had a very solid year last year. Phillies have a good rotation. Phillies have a good rotation. Their offense should be better and the bullpen, you know, you just you kind of have to flip a coin with it. Bullpens are so up and down every year. Except the Philly bullpen has been mostly down year after year after year. Uh looking back at last year, they were so weird because they started the year 21 and 29 they obviously make the managerial change, which worked. They go 51-26 over an expend, extended period of time. But then they closed the season collapsing. They were 7-13 in their last 20 games. And they were fortunate. They made the postseason. The Brewers were unable to take advantage of it. And then they got hot at the right time, which could be any of us. It, it didn't happen to the Mets, unfortunately. And look, it didn't even happen to the Braves. You know, we spent so much time going through that pennant race, that legitimate back and forth. It wasn't even back and forth. It was the Mets leading the entire time, National League East race. And at the end of the day, I know the Brave fan got the last laugh, but they got knocked out quick too. That was the divisional series because that's the reward for winning the division and having a top two record. But both the Mets and Braves, who had such good regular seasons last year, it all got thrown out the window because of a short series. And and I don't think there's anything you really can do to, to kind of build towards that. You know, you want to have the best pitching rotation you can. I think the Mets had that on paper. You want to have the best kind of three or four relievers you have. The Mets had that last year specifically with the closer. Then you just have to hope you hit at the right time. And the Mets were a bat-on-ball team last year. They didn't strike out a lot. So anyone who thinks, oh, you got to put the bat on the ball in the postseason – you got to hit home runs too. The Mets didn't do any of that. They didn't pitch well. They didn't hit enough. They lost. So there isn't an exact formula for succeeding in October. It's more, you just have to succeed in October, which the Mets didn't do last year and the Braves didn't do last year. But the Philadelphia Phillies, to me, make this a legitimate three-team division. The Braves deserve the respect as the defending division champions and the Mets are coming off 101 wins, and I think the Phillies are going to be better. And like I said earlier, it's 13 games against your division rival. So down from 19, so the six fewer games you're playing against your division rival. The Mets play the Phillies six times at home. They play them seven times on the road, and Bryce Harper is not going to be available for the first half of the season. So now, that's one factor in the whole Met-Philly rivalry. A couple of days ago, I got a very interesting email from a guy who listens and said, can you guys at some point discuss these rule changes, which we haven't mentioned that much during this offseason, but they're very significant, and how they may impact the Mets in a positive or negative way. I think it's a great idea. There's a lot of rule changes, so we'll deal with one at a time. So for today's episode, we'll get into the... Uh, the pitch clock. We'll get into the shift at a later episode. We'll get into the bigger bases. We'll get into that other stuff, but the pitch clock is one thing, and I think it's the most significant change in baseball in terms of just the speed of the game. I mean, obviously, the game is going to speed up in a big, big way, and it's something I've always had a passion for because over the last, I'd say, five years, I've DVR'd games more than ever, really over the last five to 10 years, and it's increased even more in doing afternoon shows. Because I get home, I'm not home in time to start a game. It would If I did, I'd, I'd be, miss the first three or four innings. I'm the kind of fan that wants to watch every pitch. So I eat dinner, I talk to my wife, I start the game late. I've talked about that a lot. But a part of DVRing games has allowed me to see firsthand how long it takes in between pitches. Because there are times in which I notice how long it takes and I press a skip button where I don't want to miss a pitch, obviously, but I want to miss the downtime. And so for years, me and my dad, because my dad's big on the DVR as well, would text each other comments on every pitcher that we know takes their sweet-ass time. And my dad would even joke, I got a 30-second skip button. I have to hit the 30-second skip button twice for certain pitchers. And I'll name you one guy that was brought up a lot, and that guy was J-Riss Familia. Riz Familia was a freaking human rain delay. So for years, this is one off-base stat that me and my dad were interested in, which is how long does it take for certain guys in between pitches on average? And I found out a year ago that they actually keep that stat, that that stat exists. I don't have to sit there with my remote control and then write it out. Like, ah, 17.8 seconds for Steven Matz, but Familia? 47.2 is actually a stat on fan graphs in which they keep the average time in between pitches. And when I started looking at that, it was just more for my own interest. But now it means something because MLB has implemented a pitch clock. Here are the rules for the pitch clocks. I'm not sure if anyone really knows it yet. Like Pete. Do you know what the pitch clock rule is?
1: Do you know the time on the pitch clock? All right, so I'm going to take a guess because they've had a a clock running for quite some time now. I think it's 20 seconds. So, no. And and by the (laughs) way, (laughs) so off. No, you're not.
0: You're not so. I mean, you're only so off if you add it up over the course of 300 pitches in a game. Then it adds up. But the clock that they've had at ballparks has meant nothing. Okay, it was there almost as a, hey, get ready for this meaning something someday. But right now it doesn't. The only time it would ever mean anything is for us as fans to know during a half inning break how long before the inning was going to start. So it would flash up, hey, two and a half minutes. And so as you're walking back from the bathroom, you could see, oh, there's 15 seconds left. I guess the inning's about to start. But in the midst of a game, that clock meant absolutely nothing. And the reason I heard it was there was to literally get the players ready for the fact that someday there's going to be a clock there that actually matters, believe it or not. So, so here's the official rule. And if the rule is broken, uh, my understanding is the umpire could say, okay, that's a ball. And the same thing for hitters. Hitters also need to be in the batter's box. But for the sake of this discussion, in the impact of the pitchers, when there's nobody on base, the rule is 15 seconds. 15 seconds. That's why when you say 20, are you close? I mean, five seconds isn't a big deal, but over the course of a lot of pitches, it is a big deal. You know, you you do the math. How many pitches are there in a, in a baseball game? Figure there's about 300 pitches in a baseball game. Well, five seconds on each pitch? That adds up. So it's a 15-second rule when there's nobody on base, and then there's a 20-second rule When there are guys on bases, guys in major league baseball, and I got the stats so that you could kind of put this in your head and realize that this is going to be really interesting. Guys would never throw their baseball in 15 seconds or less. Like it was a rarity so much so that there are 399 pitchers in major league baseball that register in terms of this pace of play stat. Three hundred and ninety nine pitchers, only twenty three of them averaged less than fifteen seconds per pitch with nobody on base. Twenty three of them. And there are four hundred pitchers in baseball. So that means there are only twenty three guys in Major League Baseball who could honestly say this rule doesn't impact me. I throw in less than fifteen seconds anyway. Now, Pete, I got a question for you. Okay. One of those 23 guys, one of those 23 pitchers, who average throwing a pitch with nobody on base in under 15 seconds is actually on the New York Mets. Who is it? Max Scherzer. It's a great guess, but it's not Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer would, av- on average, throw a baseball with nobody on base 16.6 seconds. That's a violation, Max. <laughs> Max, I'm sorry, bro. Violation. You're off by 1.6 seconds. Max Scherzer, by the way, ranked 100th of the 400 pitchers. So he was still in the top quarter of Major League pitchers in terms of pace of play, but still not not quick enough. Sorry. It's not Max Scherzer. You want one more guess, or do you want me to just
1: tell you? Uh, I'm going to say Edwin Diaz.
0: That's a very good guess. Edwin Diaz was a very fast-throwing pitcher, But he averaged 17.6 seconds, which is 2.6 seconds (laughs) off of the pace that we need. Edwin Diaz ranked 172nd in baseball amongst the 400 pitchers. So he's a little bit in the top half. The guy I'm referring to, who averaged 14.8 seconds, so two-tenths of a second better than the 15-second rule, and ranked 18th in all the Major League Baseball is, of course, David Peterson.
1: Oh, my God.
0: You love him so much. Maybe maybe you know why now. (laughs) Because he pitches fast. Because he gets that freaking ball and he throws it. So only 23 pitchers would have no problem with this rule. So when someone asks me or you ask someone else, hey, how do you think the pitch clock's going to affect guys with nobody on base? You would think guys would adjust. But there's a lot of guys who have to make an adjustment. The thing with nobody on base, you would think, would be easier to adjust. The question is going to be how do guys
1: react when there is a guy on base? So let me give you some numbers there. Oh, 20- real, real quick, just go yeah. back, just because I want to with the Peter, Peter thing. Where does he rank? And who's number one? So the number one guy. Oh my god, I saw it on the list. I completely
0: forgot. You didn't um, write it
1: down. Out of that, I one- didn't. I didn't <laughs> write that one down. <laughs> You have the who ranks 140th on the list, but you don't have the number one. No, but I remember who ranks last. Do you want to know who ranks last? Uh Steve Draxel. It's called
0: it's somebody who pitches in New York, just not on the Mets. Uh, Nesta Cortez. No, he would be the opposite of that. Come on. Well, he's so weird with his delivery though. Doesn't he uh, have to the, f- mess around? The guy's Jonathan Lewiziga. Ah. Jonathan uh, Lewiziga is the slowest working. <laughs> the slowest working pitcher <laughs> in all of Major League Baseball. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, I honestly, I forgot. It but, was- but
1: but did Peterson was in the top 20. He was one of the 23 pitchers, but you don't remember where he was in those rankings. Though. No, no. He was 14th. 14th. Okay. I'm sorry, 18th. 18th. Okay. Hey, let's, that's impressive compared to all those hundreds of pitchers. That's good. Justin Verlander was actually close
0: to the bottom, he ranked 299th. He averaged 20.1 seconds. Adam Adovino ranked 341st at 21.1 seconds. And Tyler McGill was 345th at 21.3 seconds. But I really think that with the nobody on base thing, it shouldn't be that difficult. I don't think the adjustment with nobody on base is going to be as difficult as the adjustment with guys on base. And the guys on base rule is 20 seconds. The average major league pitcher would throw the ball when there was a guy on base in 23.3 seconds. So very similar. This is a little bit over three seconds above the new rule. There were only 13 guys in Major League Baseball who, on average, threw the baseball with a guy on base in less than 20 seconds. Only 13. With nobody on base, there were 23 guys. With guys on base, there were only 13. That means just about every single pitcher in Major League Baseball, is going to have to deal with something that they're not used to. Because, again, if you're throwing the ball in less than 20 seconds and there's a new 20-second rule, no big deal. And the Mets happen to have a guy who not only threw the baseball on average in less than 20 seconds with guys on base, but really blew it away. He was doing it in no time. And And you were right on, Pete, earlier with a guy you were thinking about because this guy with guys on base actually works faster which is crazy, and that guy is Edwin Diaz. Edwin Diaz, and, and this was noticeable, and I'm sure as a Met fan, as, as you hear this, you may be shaking your head because it was noticeable. Edwin Diaz would get the freaking baseball with a guy on base, and he would go. like He did not wait around at all, and what I find so odd about him is that Edwin Diaz threw the baseball in 17.6 seconds. Again, the new rule is 20 seconds, so Edwin's got this beat by a lot. That's the exact same amount of time as Edwin would throw the baseball with nobody on base. And there's no pitcher who does that, by the way. Like, every pitcher slows down when there's a guy on base. Edwin Diaz has the exact same time. And last year, that worked for him. He ranked 11th in all of Major League Baseball in terms of quickly throwing the baseball home with a guy on base. So Edwin Diaz, you know, based on... These two new rules, or the one new rule, but with guys on base and nobody on base, he's the one guy that should not be affected in any way.
1: So I have a question because, and now this is a deep dive, I don't know if you want to go into it. Maybe for the next episode you'll have this. Last year he was so dominant, and I think he was in a really good rhythm, which is why I think he just got rid of the ball, even when there were bad people on base. He just got rid of the ball quicker when that happened, and he was so confident I want to go maybe even just a year before that, or especially 2019 when it was struggled. I'm curious to see what it was then. With, yeah, with like, did he,
0: ch- did he change that? Is yeah. that something he did differently last year as compared to years past? That's an interesting question. If that was something that actually benefited him. Because it makes sense. You know, the one thing I've I've never been able to prove this with stats. Now you got stats for everything, as you can hear, with something like this from Fangraphs. But back in the day... I used to always think that the best pitchers were the ones who worked at the fastest pace. It was just a a feeling that we all had. Ah, Every elite pitcher would get the ball, he'd throw it home, and that would be it. There wouldn't be that much waiting around and stepping off and BSing. And again, that's not a scientific thing. I'm sure there were some great pitchers that took all day. Look, I'll give you an example right now. Justin Verlander. Justin Verlander is a slow worker. The numbers prove it. Whether there's guys on base, whether there's nobody on base, I'm looking at the numbers. 20, 20.1 seconds with nobody on base, ranked 299 among 400 pitchers, and 24 seconds with guys on base, and ranked 244th amongst pitchers. So Verlander's an all-time great. He obviously hasn't worked at a fast pace, but it's an interesting question about Edwin Diaz. I, I am concerned about Cody Senga. Because there is a parallel. Every single Japanese pitcher works at an incredibly slow pace. So it must be something that was taught overseas and taught in Japan because Daisuke Matsuzaka back in the day was the slowest working pitcher. Yu Darvish today, slowest working pitcher. Shohei Otani, slowest working pitcher. It's not an anomaly, it's not a stereotype, it's a fact. It just is Japanese pitchers work at an incredibly slow pace, uh, probably because of something that just happens over there in Japan. Maybe that's just the way guys are taught when they're growing up. Take your time. There's no rush. Think about what you're about to throw. Get the right grip. Get set. There's no rush. We can be here all day. Well, in Major League Baseball in 2023, you can't be here all day. The, the other aspect of this is, is the fact that you are only allowed what they're calling two disengagements with a guy on base. And what that means is pitchers are limited to two disengagements, which qualify as pickoff attempts or step-offs per plate appearance. This is a complicated one, and there's no stat here for this. It's more just thinking logically. If you're the kind of guy that likes to kill time by throwing over to first base, you can only do it twice. If you throw over a third time and you don't get the guy out, it's considered a balk. So the odds of you throwing over a third time are very, very low. It also leads to the idea that the base runner, after a guy has either stepped off or picked off numerous times, is going to take a bigger leap because they know, hey, this guy can't throw over. And if he does, I get second base anyway. That's a that's a weird one, man. I think that's the weirdest part of this pitch clock thing. The pitch clock thing is, okay, get the ball, throw it home, let's go. But the fact that there's a limit on how many times you can throw over to first base or step off, that's a tricky one.
1: That, that I think, is going to be turned over eventually. I think they're going to have to rework that one. Not that's saying it's going to be gone, but they're going to have to do adjustments to that because you're right. I mean, eventually, two throws over – you have to be overly confident that you have him, and that never – how often do people get picked off? Rarely ever. I mean, with the amount of throws to first base, how often do they pick somebody off? Well, part of this is connected to the bigger bases,
0: which we'll get into in another pod. The reason they expanded the sizes of bases, one is for player safety, and the other thing is to try to kind of get the run game going, to bring back stolen bases to Major League Baseball. Sabre Metrics, in a way, has killed it. Because they don't think it's worth trying to steal a base. That it's not good baseball. So by increasing the size of the base, you're also decreasing the amount of space there is between first and second base. And now, combine that with the fact that the pitcher can only throw over two times, you should see an explosion. Or at least an increase. Maybe the explosion is too strong in guys trying to steal second base. And we'll examine that on a later pod, if that benefits or hurts the Mets with the catching that they have and that the speed that they have, but that's also going to be an adjustment because I don't have a stat on how many times a guy steps off or how many times a guy uh, picks off, uh, tries to pick off a guy at first base. But I would think that sometimes guys do that, not necessarily because they're trying to pick a guy off, but because, Hey, they're just kind of killing time. Like, ah, I don't want to pitch. I'm going to throw to first base. Think about it more, maybe kind of get the, the pace of the hitter out of whack a little bit. Maybe the hitter wants to get up there and hit, and you're continuing to pick a guy off first base. Maybe it slows the game down a little bit. I'm sure there are various strategies for why pitchers do it. So it's not only get the ball and throw it, but it's also two disengagements per batter. Based on who's in the Met rotation, it's tough to say, because I think Max Scherzer, despite being a guy who needs to speed up to fit the 15-second rule and speed up to fit the 20-second rule. I look at Scherzer, I look at Verlander, and I figure they'll make the adjustment. These guys are veterans. If anything, that may be the benefit of having older guys on your staff that, yeah, even though they're used to no pitch clock, you would think they're also used to adjusting, and they're used to kind of figuring it out. Carlos Carrasco, same thing. Jose Quintana, same thing. Edwin Diaz seems perfectly cool with this new system based on how quickly he works and the Kodai a thing look it's a part of the adjustment he's going to have to make a lot of adjustments to American Major League Baseball right out of the gate and one of which is going to be the pitch clock so I don't know and I don't think there's any way to say hey this hurts the Mets or this benefits the Mets I don't think there's an answer to that but it's something that everybody's going to have to deal with this year and I don't know about you Pete I think it's just good for baseball. I think it's really good because these games over the last few years take way too long. And I'm not saying that as somebody that wants to go home. I'm saying that as somebody that watched baseball growing up
1: and the game was quicker because the pace was quicker. So I you know, I it's debatable and I don't I'm gonna argue with on that. Because Which one? on the fact that, yeah, you want the game to go quicker, I get that, but there's certain things, there's certain times in the game, the intensity of the situation is now going to be sped up. And I hate that. Now, don't get me wrong. like, Not every game is supposed to be like, okay, stop and start, stop and start. You know, here now, we let's go talk to the pitcher again and let's, let's throw over to the first base. Okay, like I get that. That does lengthen it out. But there's moments like, you now, the reason why I love baseball so much is it, it reminds me of a real-life chess match. And, and and that, to me, is, is taking away from it because you're right. A pitcher thinking about I'm going to mess with this batter right now. I'm going to make him sit here and wait a little bit extra and get under his skin. Let me control the situation. You're controlled by a clock. You're controlled by how many times you can throw over. And it does speed it up, but it takes away those mind games. And I love those mind games at times.
0: If you think back to every exciting ninth inning Edwin Diaz pitched last year, was anything taken away from it? Not that I recall. No, I think it was pre- they were pre- pretty good. Yeah, because Edwin Diaz got the effing ball and he threw it home. There was no waiting around. You know, J-Riz Familia took an hour and a half. Did that w- was that more exciting? Like, uh, was it better because we got forty five seconds between strike one and ball one in,
1: in a playoff situation? The intensity and, and like someone like just taking a step off the mound and you're just like on pins and needles. Yeah, it kind of creates a bigger feel. I disagree, man. I really do. I, I I love that there's no clock
0: in baseball, but I think this is a clock that's necessary.
1: If that makes any sense, I, it's now. Here's the thing: is I don't disagree for everything because you're right. Like it speeds up the game. Let's let's get to that part. Let's get to the bigger parts of the game. It's almost like though, in extra innings in a in a playoff game, you're not gonna have a runner on second base. You're, you're not doing that because it's the playoffs it's a bigger game bigger so you want to take the st- pitch clock away
0: you want to take the pitch clock away for the playoffs? Is that what you're saying
1: maybe the ninth inning?
0: <laughs> I think you're nuts. yeah like I, I give you an example. I don't know if this is a good example. in the NBA, the final two minutes of a close game can be really really exciting. but the one thing that's always driven me nuts is the amount of timeouts. And the fact that up, timeout. Possession, timeout. Possession, timeout. And the whole joke is the final two minutes of an NBA game take 35 minutes. I got t- I hate that about the NBA. I do. That's why I've always been intrigued by the idea of that. What's that rule? I, f- I forget what they call it. The, um, they try it in the All-Star game where there's a target number to hit. As opposed to having a clock just run out where it could take 35 minutes to play the last two minutes. You could have the drama of... A target score. So yeah, there's drama during the timeout. Like, oh, what play is going to be drawn up? Is the defense gonna be able to make a play? There's drama, but I don't need five minutes of downtime to build up the drama. You no, know, when a when a pitcher gets the baseball and it's a two-two pitch and the bases are loaded, I don't need five minutes to think about. He's got <laughs> the ball.
1: Let's go. Let's yeah, see what but, happens. But dude, think about the biggest situations in the past few years of sports moments and stuff like that, where you're literally sitting there with your hands on your head, intense intensity, intense moments. Yes. If everything is slowed down, like it, it kind of just makes it that more intensive, which is why sports is so great. Like that, that's what I love. I, I do like things being slowed down a little bit. Now you're right. Is it, is it too much? Is it too, I can't stand the NBA because of that. But on the other hand, if the Nets are in the, the, the finals, game seven, and there's 30 seconds left on the clock, and it's a one-score game, and there's still maybe 10 possessions left because they can foul and do whatever it is and whatever, extend the game, it just builds that final play.
0: You know, Pete, if the Mets are in game seven of the World Series or the <laughs> Nets are in game seven of the NBA Finals, it doesn't matter. We're going to be excited and nervous and freaking out. Of course, of course, of course, we're going to be on the edge of our. We're going to be on the edge of our seat no matter what. I, I, I think the pitch clock does a lot more good than bad. I do because growing up watching baseball games took two and a half hours. Now they take three hours. You got to ask yourself why. What's the difference? Is it because there are more strikeouts and more walks? Is it as simple as that because there's more pitches in a game? Or is it also because guys take more time in between pitches? And all you've got to do, and I saw this during the pandemic, is go back and watch old games. And baseball was great back in the day. It's not like it's gotten better or worse, in my opinion. Baseball's baseball. But this aspect of baseball has gotten worse. It takes longer in between pitches. That's got to stop. Like, I'm not going to legislate necessarily that guys strike out more or there are more walks or there's more strategy of taking pitches. That's baseball. It is what it is. There's going to be more pitches in a game. There's obviously more pitching changes in a game now. But there really shouldn't be 40 seconds between pitches. And I've seen it abused over the years. I saw it with J. Riss Familia. Uh, It was crazy. I'm telling you, you think I'm, you think I'm exaggerating. There's going to be a 25-second rule. I've seen this guy take 50 to 55 seconds in between pitches. That's
1: absurd. I feel like there was a highlight video that somebody did, like a seven-minute video of like somebody. It might have been familiar. And he threw, like, six pitches in, like, seven minutes. It, yes. was, it was ridiculous. And, yes! Uh, and, by the way, I did the math because uh, I guessed 20 seconds per pitch. And if you say 300 pitches, um, 300 pitches in a game – if you shave that five seconds to make it 20 seconds, if you make it that long, it would be at another 25 minutes of the game Wow! for, for adding five seconds per pitch you from see? 15 to 20. So I do get that. Yes.
0: That's significant. Uh, it's, it's pretty it is. long.
1: <laughs> it's pretty so long. Look,
0: There's two aspects. There's, Hey, do you like this for baseball as a baseball fan? And then there's the aspect of, Oh, does it help my team? Does it screw my team? Does it help my team? I think that the more veteran you are, I think the easier it would be to make adjustments, which may be the opposite of some people viewing it. They may say, hey, they're, they've got the old habits so they're tougher to break. But I think when you've been around so long, you've made so many other adjustments that the adjustment of a pitch clock shouldn't be that difficult. But I'm intrigued to see it this year. And what, really did, you,
1: what did you say the penalty was? Like you said that it was a, there was a, b- a bulk initiated if it, you threw more than two times and you didn't get the run around. What was it if you, pa- you went past 15 seconds? They'll call the ball. They'll call the ball. Oh they'll boy. call a ball more walks. Right.
0: Well, it's not going to, it's never good. Here's what I would predict. Familiar's going to walk every single batter. <laughs> Early in the season, there are going to be guys who get up. Yep, yep, that's a ball. I think by the middle of April, it'll never happen. Cause guys are going to know guys. are. There's going to be a clock. You're going to see it. And maybe even spring training will help it out too. You know, getting that called a lot in spring training and guys realizing, oh crap! They're really calling this. This is not, you know, some kind of friendly warning. <laughs> they're really going to call
1: a. This ball is going to get so bad because you know what's going to happen. People going to start wearing shock collars at like 19 seconds, but like, I, if I or or 14 seconds, like I got to get the ball off before I get shocked. It's going to yeah. it's going to start getting too too crazy. Look at this, the Houston Astros of
0: 2018. <laughs> <laughs> they were ahead th- of it, indeed. Any thoughts or any questions? You can always email the pod at the Ricoh b at gmail.com. As we do uh, more pods, as we get closer to spring training, we'll examine more of these rules and how it affects the Mets in Major League Baseball. Uh, We mentioned briefly the bigger bases and obviously the shift, which has us all trying to predict which batter's batting average is going to go up a lot, who's going to be negatively affected by the shift, what pitcher will be negatively affected by the shift. We'll try to examine that as the weeks go on. And hopefully there'll be a Rico Brunia soon where we can examine the final verdict on Carlos Correa. Either he's a Met... We've got to move on. But we appreciate you listening. You can listen to me and Craig Monday through Friday, 2 o'clock. Pete producing Tiki and Tierney at 10 a.m. on WFAN. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Brogno podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.